0: Physics world. Hello and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Later on in this episode, we chat about the rise and rise of science in China, Erwin Schrodinger's brief sojourn at the University of Oxford, and a quantum sensor that could boost the range of electric vehicles. But first, we meet a researcher who works at the intersection of material science and women's health, a career that began with an unexpected phone call from an obstetrician looking for help in measuring forces. Here is Michelle Oyen in conversation with Physics World's Margaret Harris.
1: Michelle Oyen is a biomechanical engineer and biophysicist at Washington University in St. Louis, US, and the director of the Center for Women's Health Engineering. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Good morning. How did you become interested in applying your knowledge of material science to these challenges in women's health? It's a very funny story, actually. Um, And this is
2: 100% true. I was a PhD student working in orthopedic biomechanics, very traditional field in bioengineering. And I was in the lab one day and took a phone call, just the phone rang, and I was the one who answered it. And it was an obstetrician. And he wanted to know if there was anyone in the lab who could measure forces. And I said, well, yes, I can measure forces. What do you need? Um, And he was interested in preterm birth and in the rupture of the fetal membranes, the waters breaking. And he wanted to know whether a medical procedure that he was doing where he was in Uh, using an antiseptic, whether that was perhaps changing the properties of those membranes and making them more prone to rupturing prematurely. And so we actually collaborated on a study to examine that question, but then started collaborating uh, more generally. And by the time I finished my PhD, I was actually funded and working in the OBGYN department and doing my
1: PhD on bone and biomaterials on the side. (laughs) Nice, nice. So apart from that area that just sort of of first drew you in, what are some, some key topics where material science and women's health overlap?
2: I think there's there's a lot. So first of all, I think it's useful to talk about what we're talking about in women's health, because this is a very large area and a very diverse area. Um, my focus is specifically on reproduction. And so I'm interested in premature birth and how to prevent it, how to diagnose it, how to get away from the problems where one in 10 uh, babies worldwide are born early. And that can lead to a whole bunch of knock-on effects. Um, there are obviously other things that don't have to do with Pregnancy, but that still have to do with the reproductive system, so reproductive cancers, things like that. Um, and then there's also just the more general case of um things that are different in women compared to men. So you have diseases like osteoporosis that have a, a hormonal component, um, where you have a um, a significant difference in the um the prevalence of a of a condition in one sex versus the other. Um, osteoporosis is one good example. Um, there are many others that are very big differences differences in terms of heart disease. There are a lot of differences in terms of the immune system. So that all encompasses women's health. Um, Like I said, I'm specifically focusing on pregnancy. um, And I would say um, me and my colleagues here at WashU are mostly focused on the reproductive system, but looking at gynecologic cancers, as well as things with uh, pregnancy and preterm birth. Um, And the way that materials really comes into this is, is multifold. One of the areas where people are most familiar with material science in women's health is contraception because condoms are made of materials and diaphragms and IUDs and, you know, Norplant, the the implants that release hormones, all of these things are made of materials. And so if there's one place where there's a mature field of looking at materials in women's health, it's actually in contraception and people don't think of it like that.
1: So what are some of the, the key materials challenges in your own research? So we,
2: because we're working on pregnancy, we're very interested in a couple of things. One is preterm rupture of the fetal membranes. So the membranes rupture prior to term in about 3% of all pregnancies. Um, And one of the places where that's become far more common now is after fetal surgery. So if you go in and do something to correct a um, malformation in the fetus prior to delivery, or if you go in to fix something about the placenta, these, are, these sorts of procedures are becoming increasingly common. But now you've cut through the bag of waters that has this amniotic fluid that grows in both the pressure of the fluid and the volume of the fluid throughout pregnancy. And so having cut through that, you might have a a much greater risk of that bag of water essentially rupturing prior to term. And so we've been looking at making a patch using a tissue engineering approach to sort of mechanically bolster the region where you've cut through in order to do the fetal surgery. We're also very interested in early development of the placenta. And so we've been looking at making hydrogel materials that act as an internal uh, lining of the uterus or decidua um, mimetic, So trying to make a hydrogel-like matrix that can act as a extracellular matrix for the cells of the early placenta, trying to understand how that development happens. Because things that go wrong in the first trimester of pregnancy in the early development of the placenta show up in the third trimester in very prevalent and horrible conditions, such as preeclampsia and fetal growth restriction, both of which can lead to significant fetal morbidity and mortality, but preeclampsia can also lead to maternal morbidity and mortality. So basically, the placenta is trying to kill you when you're pregnant, and the placenta belongs to the baby. And that's an important point that not everybody realizes. The placenta is fetal tissue. It comes from the baby. It comes from the fetus. It doesn't come from the mother's tissue. It's completely the fetus's tissue, but it has all these endocrine signaling functions that can affect mother's blood pressure, which is what happens in preeclampsia, where the woman's blood pressure can become dangerously high.
1: So one way that material science has been in the news lately with to do with women's health is the sort of well-publicized failure of um, vaginal mesh implants. You know, tell us a little bit what, what's gone wrong there and, and what the field is trying to do to, to fix it.
2: Mm hmm. So the the history is that um, materials that were successfully used for hernia surgeries were repurposed for use in the vagina. And they did not match the properties needed for the application very well. And so there were a number of very high profile failures. And once people started to realize that there had been this sort of off label use of of these materials and these uh, medical devices, um, you know, the. The 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 surgeries ceased to happen. Um, The regulation worked. Um, The the attention was shown on this from a lot of um, the regulatory uh, bodies in different countries, and they started to draw attention to this and and how many women had had these implants uh, of these very poorly matched uh, uh, materials that I mean really were just too stiff for the application. Um, The surgery was a little bit experimental and and I'm going to admit that this is not my area of expertise I have friends who work in this area who know a great deal more about the details than I do but there there are different surgical approaches that you can take some of them have been successful some of them have been the disastrous ones um, and so it's not just about the materials of anything in biomedicine is always a combination of the materials the devices the surgeons the procedures all of this and so you know there was one particular category of these surgeries that has spectacularly failed the devices have been recalled called for this use, and now new approaches are being considered, mostly using materials that have very different mechanical properties that are um, in different geometries than the ones that had been developed for hernias, which obviously are a very different application than in the vagina. Um, and so I think there is a very hopeful future for this field, but it's going to then, on top of all of the other challenges to do with regulation and medical devices and getting new products to market, it's going to have to overcome the stigma of all of these failures that happened with these, um, these devices that really caused a great deal more pain than they corrected.
1: Yeah, because when you read some of the reports about this, certainly I found myself sort of, you know, wincing, crossing my legs, all the rest. It's a really very difficult situation.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, the problem is, is that the original problem is a horrible one. So what happens is that you can actually get prolapse of the pelvic organs, including the uterus, down into the vagina to the point that it actually starts to exit the body and you can see it and feel it. And so this is an appalling thing that used to be not discussed And so this is another piece of shining the light on women's health issues is just talking about things that we used to think of as icky. (laughs) So getting people to just say, you know, actually, this probably happened to my grandmother. And she didn't talk about that because of the shame and because this was, you know, women's problems. And we kept that in the closet. And, you know, urinary incontinence is another symptom of this that we don't like to talk about that, you know bringing these things into the light and talking about them is a a big part of this problem in addition to the material science and the, the engineering and all of that. It's like there's this whole social aspect and societal consideration as well.
1: Okay. So you've recently been named, as I said, as the inaugural director of the Washington University's new center for women's health engineering. Why is it important to have a center like this that focuses specifically on women's health?
2: Mm hmm. So there's a couple of reasons for that. One, this is a really understudied problem. And that's a really interesting thing. There's reasons for that. Historically, scientists were men. Um, and that is probably a piece of it. Um, but there's also, you know, there was because of the, the ethical challenges of pregnancy and things like that, there were no mandates for a very long time that required medical research to include female participants, female tissues, female cells. And in fact, the history of those things becoming mandates, uh, that's relatively recent. And so the the whole study of biology in um in in the last hundred years, when when we've really had this sort of professional um, science studying these sorts of things, that that has focused on men's cells and men's tissues, and there was not a equity in in looking at this. And the excuse was, oh, well, females are too complicated, right? So we have hormonal signals that change over the course of this 28-day cycle. And so, oh, that makes everything more complicated. We're just going to keep it simpler and use all men's cells. And so that was the gold standard for a very long time until quite recently. And so women's health went understudied. And so things like the fact that women present different symptoms when they have cardiovascular disease than men do, that was
1: not something that was very well known. And what about with what you mentioned before, that osteoporosis affects women, is it more common or just affects them differently? Um, more commonly. So so because of the interactions between,
2: and this is not my area of expertise, but because of the interactions between hormones and bone um, uh, bone uh, equilibrium, essentially, because bone is constantly remodeling in terms of its creating new bone and, and removing old bone in order to remodel. Um, that That sort of equilibrium of the bone is affected by hormones. And so that means that women are more prone to to osteoporosis. They also tend to load their bones less. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever gave to my mother um, was when she got into her 60s, it was a good idea to start lifting weights. She looked at me like I was crazy, but she's now a very buff, nearly seven-year-old woman with arms that I would absolutely die for because she has been taking my advice and lifting weights and trying to sort of bulk up um, in order to help with that fight against osteoporosis.
1: Now, you mentioned osteoporosis and also um, sort of heart disease presenting differently Mm -hmm. in in women. What are some other consequences of the failure to conduct, historically conduct research on women's health? Um, What are some of the other gaps that have resulted in our knowledge? It's an interesting question. And there was, there's been quite a lot of
2: attention on this recently. There was a fantastic paper that came out last year in the journal Science about how because we have mostly men inventors, and because mostly female teams of inventors invent things to do with women's health, there have been fewer medical devices targeted at women's health over the years as a result of that. Um, And then if you look, there was another paper that came out about two years ago now looking at funding, and it came out that If you take away all other factors, diseases that are primarily or exclusively in women have been underfunded relative to their burden. So their their sort of life year burden in terms of how they affect society, those diseases and conditions have been vastly underfunded and those to do with men have been vastly overfunded. And so you've got this combination of needing the money. So you need funding, you need research funding, you also need companies, right? You need... uh, companies that are dividing or devising these devices and marketing them. And that's where the femtech sector comes in, which is this explosively growing area right now. Um, So you need the money, you need the companies, and then you need the people. And that's where our center is really focusing because we can train the next generation. So if you have an entire group of young engineers who didn't realize that they could have a career in women's health engineering, well, you know, now we can train those people and then they can be the next generation going out into doing the research into working in these companies and overall just you know bolstering this new and developing field
1: so when you look maybe sort of five years down the road what would success look like for this either the center or for your efforts to get um material science to focus more on on problems to do with moon's health So if you look at every materials department in every engineering
2: school in the world, you will find people working on bone. And so my goal is to also find people working on women's health in all of those same places. And so I don't think that's a five-year solution. I think we're looking at a little bit longer term than that. But that is the goal is just to, to flat out have more people working in this area. Um, because obviously, the more people that are working on this area, the more people are solving problems, the more likely we are to have some actual solutions.
1: And finally, you know, if you could sort of wave a magic wand and change one thing about how researchers approach this topic, or whether it's a mindset or, you know, <laughs> funding or or what, you know, what would it be? What's the, the, the most critical thing? I think, I hope
2: that by bringing attention and shining a light on this topic, we get Everybody interested in it. And so, what I don't want to see happen is that we end up with a field of research that's exclusively female and that it gets sort of put into a, oh, those are women's problems and only women are interested in solving them. You know, we want to say pregnancy affects everybody. Reproduction affects everybody. Women's health affects everybody. You do have mothers and sisters and daughters and all of these people around you. And so regardless of whether you are male or female, you should care deeply about this subject. And that is why we want to, you know, really invest in this, in a in a new an exciting way for the 21st century.
1: Michelle Oyen, thank you very much.
2: Absolutely.
0: That was Michelle Oyen of Washington University in conversation with Physics World's Margaret Harris. Now to look at what's new in Physics World. I'm joined by my colleagues Michael Banks and Mateen Durrani. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Harris. So, Michael, you've just published our annual China Briefing. And I think the most eye opening article, for me at least, looks at the claim that China has overtaken the US in terms of research quality. And in fact, that occurred in 2019. And what's more, China is said to have overtaken the European Union, in terms of research quality, back in 2015. So so what's going on here? What, what, What do the experts ascribe this incredible rise in research quality in China to?
3: Yeah, so we've known for a while now that China publishes more papers than any other country, um, and that includes the U.S. itself. I think that tr- kind of transition happened around 2009 or 2010 when China overtook the U.S. in terms of the, kind of the volume of papers they produce. But there's always been an issue about qual- quantity over quality um, in terms of that the The quality of papers from China is perhaps not quite as good as that of other countries, including the US. But that seems to have changed over the past decade. Um, And in in this China briefing, we look at a a recent study um, that showed actually that the papers that China is producing, the quality of that is actually surpassed the US in in terms of this specific metric that they look at. So they looked at the top 1% of the most cited articles in 2019. And they found that about 1.7% of papers from, with Chinese authors were in the top 1% of articles. And that compared actually with the US in that they produced around 1.6% of papers in the top 1%. So according to this specific metric, um, the quality of articles from China has actually surpassed that of the US. And as you mentioned in the introduction, um, China actually had already overtaken the European Union. In terms of quality, in, in that was in 2015. So you asked, uh, uh, what are some of the actual reasons for this? Well, I think the biggest reason is probably the investment in science itself. Um, over the past decade, we've seen you know a large number of new scientific facilities that have been built, and these kind of really are world class facilities. And of course, if you've got world class facilities, you're then going to produce you know leading science. And I think that's what you're now seeing in terms of publications. Uh, that are coming out of China. And it's kind of an anecdotal evidence of that. You know, if you look in in top, res- uh, top journals, such as Nature, Science, um, there are a lot more papers in those journals that are being authored now by uh, researchers in China.
0: Yeah, that, that's certainly something that I've noticed. You know, my job on Physics World uh, involves looking at a lot of research papers. And um, definitely over the past few years, I've noticed um, – sort of a, a huge surge in the number of of papers involving Chinese authors in some of those Premier League journals that you mentioned. I mean, it's it's really quite astounding how, how quickly China has moved up the league table. But then, then again, I suppose, you know, as you say, it makes perfect sense. I've only been to China once and I went to Beijing and, you know, I was really impressed with uh, the, uh, the scientific facilities there. But, it, you know, it wasn't just that you know if if you looked at the city it sort of has the look that it 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 was just built very recently you know there's lots and lots of new buildings and and lots of modern infrastructure so um you can really see i suppose how how spending money on something can uh, can can have a payback um especially when it comes to to research there was another article in the briefing that looked specifically at citations and um it was a report that uh that says that scientists from a handful of core countries including china the u s and the u k tend to be cited much more than scientists working in periphery nations so again backing up the rise of china what um what what was this study based on
3: yeah exactly so this this looked at the reference of a References in a paper, so effectively the citations that certain papers get. Um, and they looked at the number of references a paper receives and how that deviates from what you would expect based on comparisons with uh, publications in similar topics. So, say, a paper from researchers in China, they kind of compared that then with a similar research paper from, say, you know, uh, researchers in the US or the UK. Um, and, and what they kind of saw was that, say, in the 1980s, Talking about China specifically, in the nineteen eighties, China was kind of an under-cited country, Um, so that kind of means that you would expect, um, you know, a paper of similar quality would expect a similar number of citations. But in effect, um, these papers from China weren't getting as many citations as they were compared to that paper in, say, the US uh, from US authors or the UK. But then around the two thousands, that that started to change. So then these papers were not undecided anymore um, in that they garnered a similar level of citations as you would expect from the US or the UK. Um, so that was kind of, in effect, uh, China kind of moving away from this periphery of nations um, and into like this more kind of core uh, set of countries, so joining the likes of the UK, um, the US and Germany in terms of the actual impact that those papers produce uh, from China. Uh, so as you mentioned, that was kind of showing again, um, you know, China kind of becoming a scientific superpower in a way, um, in terms of the, the papers that it produces.
0: So that that's great for China, but, but doesn't that report suggest that there seems to be some sort of inherent bias in terms of how scientists cite papers? And today, they'll take a look at a paper and say, oh yeah, China, great, I'll, I'll, that that's some serious research. I'll cite that paper, whereas decades ago, they'd look at it and think, ooh, China, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't cite it. And um, I'm guessing that there are countries out there that, just as China was undersighted decades ago, are, are undersighted today. And, and those scientists maybe are doing some great research, but um, perhaps being ignored by the rest of the world.
3: Yeah, that's right. I think one of the one of the main conclusions of the paper itself, you know, was well as, as well as looking at China's output, it was about the inequalities in scientific publishing, and that you do get this effect where you know papers of similar quality just won't be as cited as much as if they come from the US or the UK. It is basically that citation bias, and you know what you can do about that to try and prevent that kind of thing from happening is quite difficult actually. Um, but there is certainly that study kind of does highlight that inequality that exists in publishing today
0: and I, I suppose um, well I mean I suppose in the peer review system you could um, you, you, you could you could not have the country uh, or I suppose you could not have the name of the of the researcher, their institution, and the country available to referees that might that might help. Um, Reduce that bias.
3: Yeah, certainly. I think these are kind of like double-blind peer review, isn't it? Where the reviewer mm-hmm. doesn't know where the, who the authors, authors of the paper are. I think that's certainly um, certainly IOP publishing anyway. That's been kind of more and more uh, being used in the peer review system itself, and maybe that's one way of getting around this kind of uh, inequality in publishing.
0: Now, now, Ch- China is definitely uh, an industrial powerhouse. And it's responsible for, um, I suppose, a large chunk of greenhouse gas emissions. And in 2020, I think it was, the Chinese government announced a very ambitious plan to reach net zero climate emissions by 2060. And in the, in the China briefing, you've got an article that looks at how scientists, Chinese scientists, are scrambling to support this um, net zero plan. Can, can, can you tell us a bit about that?
3: yeah that's right i mean we've known for a while now obviously that china is one of the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitters um in fact when i when i went to beijing i think it was in 2017 and uh when i landed at the airport um beijing airport and i was met by the person who was going to kind of help me go around the country to see various facilities etc and the first thing they passed to me was a mask and and this was before um, you know, we were kind of used to wearing masks due to COVID, et cetera. But that was obviously because of the, the poor climate there and in terms of the smog levels in Beijing and uh, fine particulate matter, et cetera. Thankfully, I didn't actually need to use the mask itself. Uh, the levels seemed to be not too bad when I was there. But we've all seen the pictures of the, you know, the, the smog levels around Beijing and, and other big cities in China. So, yeah, as you mentioned, this kind of announcement to transition China towards a net zero Carbon society by 2060 actually came as quite a surprise, and it was made itself um, in September 2020 when kind of the rest of the world was trying engulfed in COVID and and trying to you know emerge from that. Um, and part and part of the struggle towards reaching this net zero target will be uh, China's you know current reliance on coal. Um, I think it currently makes up around 60 percent of the country's. Electricity generation, so it's kind of a bit, a bit, a big chunk of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so China now is currently looking at many of the many kind of technologies. Um, part of part of reducing that will be technologies such as uh, carbon capture and sequester sequestration, where they will kind of capture some of the carbon and then kind of pump it underground. So there's, uh, there's various pilots going on at the moment in China to kind of demonstrate that technology. But also it might come as a surprise to, to some people that China is actually a world-leading producer of renewable energy. So it produces around a quarter of um, demand um, it, that's met by hydro, wind, and solar energy. So part of that effort to reach net zero will be boosting um, the country's generation of renewables. Um, and that includes kind of, I think, there's a target of around 2020 to generate about a third of electricity. From renewables itself, and then also there's other aspects such as nuclear cap- capacity. So um, China's also looking to boost um, nuclear power. I think it's about 55 gigawatts at the moment, but I think that'll need a tenfold increase, perhaps, if it is to meet these certain uh, net zero targets. So I think it seems to be like a you know a multi layered approach where you've got you know tackling carbon emissions themselves by carbon capture techniques. But also increasing like renewables or or nuclear, and the other aspect also is, as well as you you know tackling the energy supply side, it's also tackling um, the energy demand. So you know reducing, um, you know demand out there, uh, maybe the introduction of electric vehicles, you know things like that um, could possibly help to hit, hit these targets.
0: So it sounds like there's lots of lots of work to be done by Chinese physicists. To, uh, to help develop some of those technologies and solve some of those problems. Thanks, Michael. The China Briefing is available on the Physics World website. Just click on the magazine tab at the top of the homepage. So, Mateen, you've been reading a new book about Erwin Schrodinger's time at the University of Oxford. And that book's called Schrodinger in Oxford by David Clary. Now, Schrödinger was an Austrian physicist and a pioneer of quantum mechanics. I think most physicists are happy with that. And his career was well-established in 1933, when in his mid-40s, he left Berlin for the UK. So, Mateen, why did Schrödinger leave Germany? Did it have anything to do with the rise of Hitler and and the Nazi Party?
4: Well, hi, Hamish. Yeah, Erwin Schrodinger is in a really interesting and sort of complex character. Um, and he, he, he's Austrian by birth, but he he lived in Berlin from about 1928 to 1933. And yeah, you're right, that coincided with the rise of Hitler, and he came to power in 1933, and the sort of maltreatment of the many important and successful Jewish physicists. And so one of the reasons he left was definitely to get, to get away from that. And... Um, he then came to Oxford where he had a, a, f- a five-year fellowship at Magdalen College. Um, so he left Berlin after five years, came to came to England, came to Oxford.
0: And apparently he was un- unhappy at Oxford um, f- from a scientific point of view. Why was that?
4: Well, it's funny. According to David Clary's book, it, the, the visit to Oxford started very auspiciously. And on the day he arrived, which was the 9th of o- November, 1933, um, he had a big uh, fellowship dinner and he was invited uh, to dinner. And then the master of modeling College uh, got a phone call from the Times newspaper. And the master went into the uh, master's office and um, the Times informed the master that Schroding had won that year's Nobel Prize for physics with Paul Dirac. So it got off to a really, um, you know, auspicious start on that first day, but really He didn't really enjoy Oxford, and there were a number of reasons for that. I think the most important reason was that Oxford wasn't a great scientific powerhouse. And so Schrödinger didn't really have very many top physicists that he could discuss his work with. Um, I don't think he was allowed to lecture particularly uh, extensively. I think his role wasn't very clear um, at Oxford, what he was meant to be doing. And in the book, there's quite a few funny things. I just don't think he warmed to some of the traditions of Oxford and there's a bit where a colleague says that he complained about the quality of, this made me laugh, the quality of British doorknobs and bike <laughs> So there was sort of a mixture of sort of very important things that Nostner physicists, but also some quite mundane stuff.
0: But um, Schrodinger kn- knew what he was getting into, didn't he? Because he, uh, apparently he was a very good English speaker because one of his grandparents was from the United Kingdom. And, and apparently he had spent a lot of time in lemington Spa which I guess is not a million miles from Oxford so uh, what went wrong is it um, were his expectations of of England too high or I, I suppose it was just a terrible time in Europe wasn't it
4: Yeah, as you say, his English was very good. That was um, not a problem. The language wasn't the barrier. I think the main thing, as I mentioned, was the lack of other physicists that he could work with, that he could bounce ideas off. I don't think Oxford was a place renowned for its physics. And part of the reason that he was attracted there was that they thought that he would revitalize and, well, not revitalize, but bring Oxford physics to life. Um, He did write four very successful papers when he was there, including the famous one about entanglement And uh, I think he coined that when he was there, um, Schrodinger's cat, all that stuff. Those are four papers that he did when he was there. So those were quite successful. But then after um, he didn't survive the five years and he, he went back to Austria in 1936 after just three years into his fellowship.
0: And that seems, I suppose, with hindsight, which is always twenty twenty. That that seems like a bizarre choice for an opponent to Nazism, and of course we know that uh, that Hitler and and Nazism would soon engulf Austria. W- why did he return? Was it simply that he didn't like the his situation in Oxford, or was there more to it than that?
4: I think from David Clary's book, and he's drawn very extensively on letters and documents that were written at the time. I think. Throughout his time at Oxford, Schrödinger was very much looking for other jobs, and uh, he was in all sorts of different countries. I think he wanted to have financial security was very important to him. And eventually, the University of Graz in Austria offered him, I think, 20,000 shillings salary. And he also had another post at Vienna with 10,000 shillings. So I think the money, <laughs> I hate to say, it, attracted him back. So he went back to Austria just as you know things were coming to the boil. With the Nazis in 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 Central Europe,
0: and and didn't he make a, a bizarre statement s- supporting the Nazis at some point?
4: Yeah, I mean, while he was in Oxford, he'd done some lectures on BBC Radio about uh, his opponent, opposition to uh, political extremism and freedom, and so yeah, he he was then back in Austria, and he realised it was perhaps not the wisest thing he'd done, but yeah, he wrote a letter supporting Nazism that was published in one of the. Local papers, and I think the reason was that he wanted to sort of, uh, you know, not cause trouble. He wanted to go to Max Planck's 80th birthday celebrations in 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 Berlin, and of course he was a Nobel laureate. So the Nazis were sort of keeping an eye out for him, and they know they knew that he'd been in England, and they knew that he'd worked very closely with Jewish physicists and and you know, was trying to defend them. So I think he was a high profile person. So then he wrote this bizarre letter saying that he supported um, Hitler. I think he regretted it quite quickly. He, he said to Einstein that it was cowardly. But um, the fact is he wrote it. Um...
0: And and so in 1938, which was, of course, a, a very dark year in Austria, it was the year that Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany, um, Schrodinger left. Um, and I think he ended up back in in Oxford, didn't he, on sort of the last day of his fellowship?
4: Yeah, he had he dined one last time in November 1938, but he couldn't get a position at Oxford. And I think, well, he went to Belgium for a bit, and then eventually, 1940, he arrived in Dublin at Trinity College, and it was there that he spent, I think, the next 17 years of his life until the mid-50s um, at the Institute for Advanced Studies. And so he had quite a successful time in Dublin.
0: And, and recently, some disturbing information has come to light about Schrodinger's behavior um, in Dublin. And I think that's led to, uh, is it a lecture theater um, that was named after him uh, being renamed? What, what happened in, um, in Dublin with, with Schrodinger?
4: There was a story that came out in one of the Irish newspapers late last year suggesting that Schrodinger had had, um, was essentially a, he'd sort of had, he was a paedophile, essentially, I think you could say he'd had affairs with, or he'd had relationships, sexual relationships, sexually abused people under the age of 18. It's still a bit unclear what exactly happened, but it was enough of a controversy that Trinity renamed that lecture theatre that was named in his honour um, earlier this year, Um and yeah, I think a lot of his Schrödinger's behavior has been sort of swept under the carpet, I think it's fair to say, and it's slowly coming out. I think it was perhaps tolerated and or ignored, um, but certainly new, new materials coming out, new perspectives. Um, so yeah, he was like all great physicists, not necessarily the most perfect person by any means
0: and I think the, the, these uh, uh, allegations at Dublin, they, they came out after David Clary had finished his book. Is that right? So, um, and, and I suppose the book's about Schrodinger in Oxford, so they're, they're not covered in the book.
4: Well, the book does cover quite a lot about Schrodinger's life before Oxford and afterwards. And um, yeah, the r- most recent allegations came out after the book was published. But I did feel one criticism I had of the book was that I think this whole business wasn't really addressed head on by the author and I think he should have in his position he's a former president of Magdalen College I think he should have been a bit clearer about where he stood on Schrödinger's behavior which again like many other people he was sort of didn't didn't focus on it particularly in the book um which I think was a missed opportunity to sort of come out quite clearly and strongly that saying that this was not acceptable behavior either then or now
0: Mm. And so you can read Mateen's review of David Clary's book. It's on the Physics World website. Just look out for the headline, Erwin Schrodinger, Why Did He Fail at Oxford?
4: So, Hamish, now we're going to turn the tables and I'm going to have a bit of a chat for you because I know you've, um, you have wanted to talk about some work that we covered recently about using quantum sensors um, to boost the performance of electric vehicles. I don't know if you've got an electric car yourself, Hamish, but um, what was what was what, how how, was, how would that work?
0: Yeah this this was a very this was an interesting article. I didn't I didn't write the article. It was written by Sam Jarman, one of our regular freelancers. But I found it really fascinating because I realised that I don't really know much about electric vehicles. You sort of think that they're very simple. Okay, you've got a battery, it's hooked up to some motors, and off you go. But, um, oddly enough, there's a lot more to it than that. And, you know, of course, as you're driving along in your electric car, the most important piece of information on the dashboard is how much further you can drive before you have to recharge your battery. And it turns out that there's a lot of uncertainty in how this is measured. Um, So essentially, as you might imagine, the car's computer measures the current that's drawn from the battery and uses that information to estimate how much further you can go, how much energy is left in the battery. And, you know, you'd think that measuring electrical current is something that's been done for a very long time and, and it wouldn't really be a problem. But there is a problem, and that is that the current varies a lot. You know, it's going to be very high if you're accelerating up a hill in Bristol, and it's going to be much lower when you're coasting downhill or when you're idling. And the measurement is also noisy. So there actually is a lot of uncertainty in this current measurement. And that means that um, the estimate of... How much energy you have left in a battery can be wrong by about ten percent, which you know to me is huge. I was I was really surprised to learn that.
4: I mean that that sounds a problem. I imagine if it's ten percent overestimated, then let's say you're driving from Bristol to London, you're going to run out of juice by the time you've got to Heathrow Airport. That's not going to be much good, is it? Um, so it, that that sounds a big problem, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it, it is. And, um, you, you know, you, you sort of hit, hit the, the nail on the head there just to make sure that you don't run out of energy um, before you get to your destination. Batteries in a car have to be 10% bigger just to make sure that you can, you can get the range, the advertised range of the car and that, you know, the dashboard um, uh, information that you're getting is correct. And batteries are very heavy. And so having to, to make your battery 10% bigger, uh, that adds a lot of weight to the vehicle, which reduces uh, its energy efficiency. And it also adds cost. Batteries, of course, are very expensive. So researchers are very keen of coming up, with, coming up with a way of estimating how much energy you've got left in the tank.
4: So it's great, Hamish, to think that quantum physics is going to come to the rescue. So, I mean, what, what are these quantum sensors? What, how, how are they going to help? that problem.
0: Well, um, according to uh, Matsuko Hatano at the Tokyo Institute of Technology and her colleagues also in Japan, um, a quantum sensor based on nitrogen vacancy centers in diamond could do the trick. We've done lots of stories about nitrogen vacancy centers in diamond um, the reason these things are so interesting is that the, the the vacancy, the nitrogen vacancy essentially acts like a tiny magnet that is incredibly sensitive to external magnetic fields. And you can, you can measure the, the strength of an external magnetic field by shining light and microwaves on the magnet. So you can essentially make a, a, a sensor, magnetic field sensor out of uh, these nitrogen vacancy centers. So what they've done is they've taken two of these sensors and they've put them on either side of something called a bus bar. And that's sort of a big metal rod that uh, conducts current from the batteries to the motors of an electric car. And by putting uh, a sensor on either side of this bus bar, they measure the magnetic field created by that current in opposite directions. And then what they do is they subtract their two measurements, and that sort of doubles their measurement of the magnetic field, and it eliminates any magnetic noise that might be in the background. And the result is a very accurate measure of the current. And this applies for both low and high currents. And the team reckons that the sensor could is so good that you could get rid of that extra ten percent, and that would bring significant reductions in terms of the cost and energy consumption of electric vehicles.
4: So I guess, Hamish, that's still at the research stage. I mean, we we're not going to be able to order one of these off um, Amazon anytime soon. I guess.
0: No, no, I don't. I don't think so. But um, but you know the the the. This nitrogen vacancy technology—it's—it's—it's it's, it's fairly well established. Um, you know, I think physicists and engineers as well know how to make sensors from uh, from nitrogen vacancies. I'm guessing that you know, sort of getting the laser in there and getting the microwaves in the sensor—that—that that might be a bit tricky to do that in a way that's affordable, that you could put it into every electric vehicle on the road. But um, you know, I think it's something that could be doable. And, and really, I mean, if you're saving 10% in terms of battery weight, that, that's a, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think you know, a battery is a, is a huge, the cost of the battery is a huge chunk of the cost of uh, an electric vehicle. So a 10% reduction there you know, that that would have a huge impact. So, yeah, we'll have to see what happens uh, with this research. And you can read more about it on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Quantum Sensor Could Reduce Electric Vehicle Battery Weight by 10%. And as I mentioned, that story's by Sam Jarman. Thanks, Michael and Mateen. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Michelle Oyen, Margaret Harris, Michael Banks, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at the uncertainty surrounding the UK's status in the Horizon Europe Research Funding Scheme and how this uncertainty is affecting physicists working in the UK. You can find all episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website, and also at your favourite podcast provider. Physics World.